Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the All About Alts podcast. I am your host, Jason DeBono, and I am joined with Julian Vogel from Colony Hills Capital. He is a fund manager over there, been there since 2019. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Julian is an extensive background in real estate, been part of over a billion dollars worth of transactions, uniquely at a lot of different sides of the table, which we're going to talk a little bit about. But Julian, give us a little bit of background. You, you're, you've been at Colony Hills uh, now since 2019. Give us a little bit of what's it mean to be a fund manager? Who is Colony Hills and what are you guys up to? Sure. So I'll start with Colony Hills. So Colony Hills is a private real estate company. We're focused on the repositioning and acquisition of value-add multifamily real estate, specifically garden-style real estate. So sprawling communities, two to three stories. And most of what we've done has been in the southeastern United States, and we're starting to creep into the northeast. And my function within all of that is I source and structure all the debt and equity for all of our acquisitions. So all the commercial mortgages, and I source all the joint venture equity and the investor capital, et cetera. And that's on a deal-by-deal basis. But my title is fund manager. So my, my main focus, besides all the above that I just mentioned, is also determining the strategies for each of our funds and also raising the capital for those funds. So that's me and that's Colony in a nutshell. Cool. Well, we're going to get to Julian's experience, as I mentioned earlier, on a lot of different seats at the table But, you know, one of the things that's so cool to me about real estate, and I know our listeners have heard a variety of different people talk, but we've never really spent time on the actual structure. And I think we all know how to buy and sell real estate as individuals, right? But a lot of these bigger deals, we're talking multifamily value add projects, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of money sourced from a lot of different parties. And there's a lot of people involved in these deals. These these don't just happen. These are months and months and months of planning and then months and months and months of execution. So we're fortunate to have Julian on the show and to have him kind of share a little bit of the behind the scenes insight into kind of the how and the why behind some of these funds. I think we all see the what, right? We see a garden style apartment. It's got 285 doors. You know, we can wrap our arms around that. But but I want to make sure today that we take advantage of Julian's experience and really understand how's that actually happen, right? How do we get there? So let's talk a little bit about you know, maybe your background, you know, I'm, I shared that you've sat at a lot of different seats at the table, maybe in your words, you know, how many different seats by definition, if you will, have you sat in and, and what are some of the things that you've seen from which side of the table in real estate? Sure. So my first job out of college was at a family office in East Chester in the Bronx near uh, Einstein Medical Center. And I was mentored by a guy who's been doing debt brokering, sales brokering in the triborough markets for 30 plus years. And I was with him for a year and a half. So that really kind of threw me into the deep end as far as commercial real estate capital orchestration, let's call it that. After being there for about a year and a half and working on a multitude of different deals, uh, residential, office, retail, medical office, et cetera, all once again within the triborough markets, 
I was recruited by a company called Deerwood Capital, which was in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And they were the top 15 firm. I think they were the 15th actually in the country for three years straight when I joined. There was only 15 brokers there also headed by two partners. And the camaraderie was phenomenal. So I wasn't just working on my own deals. I was also exposed to everyone else's deals. Hey, how did you capitalize that deal you were working on in Arizona? Or how did you do that construction deal in the Northwest, whatever market it was? You know, And then to boot, we had lenders coming into the office, bringing us lunch three times a week, pitching us on their platform. Pref equity providers also coming into the office, doing a similar pitch. I was there for three years. I was underwriting my own deals. I was trailblazing my own lending relationships. I was sourcing my own borrower or client relationships, soaking all of that up. And I worked on plan developed SFR, single family rental communities, office construction deals, multifamily portfolios, self-storage. I mean, you name it. And also different types of debt, construction, bridge, meaning short-term debt, hard money loans, perm loans, long-term debt, agencies, CMBS. I mean, really all the different food groups within that space. And then after being there for three years, I actually left and I went off on my own and I started my own company for a few years doing the exact same thing until I'd moved back to Western Massachusetts from the city and linked up with Colony Hills Capital. And I was able to bring all of that experience to the table. And when I was hired, they said, look, you know, we love all of your experience. We're going to need it, but we also want to launch a fund. Can you do that for us? And fast forward four years later, we're about to launch our third fund. And since 2019, I've been part of orchestrating, I think it's $650 million at this point, of debt and equity just with, with Colony Hills Capital, inclusive of the funds that we've, we've raised and put together. Wow. I mean, it, when I said he sits at a lot of different seats at the table, you know, he has has certainly sat at many of those seats. What's the average size deal? I mean, we're you know, when you kind of looked at a lot of these deals, if you go back over the last five years, over the countless deals you looked at, what would you say the average value of a particular deal is across the board? Yeah. So when I first started, it used to be twenty to thirty million, and now it's in the last. Two and a half years, it shifted more to 75 to a, we just closed the deal July 25th. That was 130 million. So it's definitely shifted up. You know, it's not to poo poo the smaller deals. We'd love to go after those as well, but it, it sometimes takes the same amount of work to close 15, 20 million dollar deal as it does to close a hundred, hundred thirty million dollar deal. So I'd say I, there isn't really an average at this point. We've sort of evolved pretty quickly. Let's keep looking at that. You mentioned it takes about the same amount of time to close a $20 million deal as a 75. How much time does it take on average from, from the time that you sniff that, that a property is for sale or, or coming to the market to the time that you actually get the deal closed? What's a typical timeline on that? 90 to 120 days is a typical timeline for our contracts. We have a deal under contract and those are that's long. Sometimes contracts are 60 to 90. And then usually 30 days on the deal, even prior to putting it under contract. So all in all, I'd say 120 to 150 days. Wow. And how many deals, you know, from your experience, when a deal like this is being put together, how many deals are you looking at? You know, if you get a deal, how many deals did you likely have to sift through to get that deal? Wow, that's a better question for our acquisitions team. But they just sent me our, our 
our pipeline, our current pipeline has $370 million in it. And there's nine deals they're looking at, and that's just the month of September. So let's just say that that's the average, right? Nine times 12 is, uh, you know, 108 deals a year minimum. I'd say probably more like 150 deals. But it also depends on the market conditions, right? Sometimes there's a lot of volume, like 2020 to 2022, or beginning of 2022, I should say, ton of volume of, of opportunity. These days, it's a little bit slimmer, right? The transaction volume has, has gone down with, with interest rates going up. Yeah, but even under, uh, even under that math, I think what, what I want to help our listeners kind of understand is when you get into larger funds and you get into commercial you know, real estate deals, there's a tremendous amount of work that, that goes into these deals by a, a, a really a, a team of people, depending on the size and scope. And so we're going to take advantage of Julian's experience today, and we're going to talk about how they position these funds, how do they identify not just the asset, but they've got the strategy and how do they package this up? And these deals don't get done without money. That money can come from lots and lots of different places. And a lot of people are just, you know, I'll say unfamiliar with how real estate deals in their own neighborhood, town, market get closed. And I, I know when I started kind of learning more about this in, in my time here, you know, every time I, I heard about it, every time I drove past a building, it was like, who owns that and how did they buy that? Is that owned by a pool of investors? Is it owned by an insurance company? Is it owned by a REIT? And so we're going to focus today on kind of this world of fund structuring because these funds are really opportunistic and advantageous for everyone as an investor. We look at real estate in the private world, and I think a lot of people automatically think of either a REIT, right, which is really more public or, or tends to look more public, or they think of like a single family rental, right, or a short term rental or a fix and flip. And really, there's this huge world of asset classes, strategies, structures, really all at our fingertips. We're going to spend some time talking about that today. Before we dig, Julian, into the, the real meat and potatoes of kind of how you're setting up deals and creating strategies, we're going to pause and take a quick sidestep to our quirky questions of the day. So Maggie is grabbing those envelopes. Now, remember, if you have questions to submit, please do so to Maggie with a Y at newviewtrust.com with a U. These are all listeners submitted and my favorite part of the show. Julian, you ready for this? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> all right. Three questions. Okay. Question number one. If you could be on any TV show, which one would it be? Probably Shark Tank. Ooh, good one. Okay. Now here's the question. Are you one of the sharks or are you one of the uh, entrepreneurs pitching an idea? I think first as an entrepreneur and then as a shark. All right. All right. Well, I like that. Not only do you want to be on the show to benefit your business, but you also want to turn around and help others through the process. So good, uh, good answer. All right. Inquiring minds are going to want to know this. Julian, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, goodness. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe uh, I don't have a good answer. I don't think. No clue. Never done karaoke. I have to admit. All right. Well. Well. Maybe it would be your if you're alone in your car driving or you're in the shower and uh, and you're jamming out to something. What is it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Coldplay. 
in my place i guess is the first song i ever heard by coldplay and there you go stuck in my brain all right well, on a similar note, we've got to know we're gonna we're gonna stay in this song realm, and then we're gonna let you off the uh, the hot seat here. If you were a professional athlete, what would your walk up song or intro song be? Hmm, these are good questions. What would my walk up song be? Maybe uh, Eminem's song, uh, forgetting what it's called from that movie. Oh, it's uh, Lose Yourself. Eight Mile. Lose Yourself. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard song not to get pumped up about, whether you like the song or not. It's just got the right beat. Yeah. Totally. All right. There you have it. You are walking up to Eminem, but you're singing Coldplay in your head. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty radical uh, differences there, huh? Well, it's the beauty of music. It's the one thing that, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to it. All right, Julian, you are officially off the hot seat. Thank you to all the listeners that submitted uh, those questions for the quirky questions of the day. Always fun to hear the answers. Always fun to be part of. So thank you for that. We're going to get back into it because we've got really some experience on the show today that we don't come across all the time. You know, we we tend to have people that that are kind of experts on all these real estate and other, you know, alternative asset strategies. But Julian's got a very interesting perspective because he's one of the people in the background that's actually creating strategy that's creating these funds and opportunities. So, you know, when when you're creating funds and you're creating opportunities, right, you've got to be looking at the marketplace and you, that marketplace has to have an appetite, right? And you've got to be able to deliver. And if I had to guess, it's probably been a little bit of a moving target these last six, maybe to 18 months, given everything that's going on with with interest rates. How are you navigating through that as you guys look? I think you mentioned you're, you're working on launching fund three. And so- what went into at least the high-level strategy around that and, and some of the thought that may have been different this fund versus maybe the first or second fund that you were part of? Sure. So the fund strategy has been the same over the three funds. This third one is going to be identical to the second and the first as far as strategy goes. And it's a co-GP fund. And co-GP is a term that's I'm hearing more and more often across the whole spectrum of sophistication with investors. CoGP essentially, for those who don't know, allows investors to passively invest alongside the um, general partner, which in this case would be Colony Hills Capital, and not have to sign you know, any bad boy carve-out guarantees or limited guarantees or deposits, et cetera, et cetera, not have to do the day-to-day work, but get your, your percentage share at the end of the day when the deal sells of what's called the promote or the carried interest. And that's the disproportionate share of the profit that the GP gets for doing a good job, essentially, when the property sells. And so we allow investors through our fund to participate in that passively alongside Colony Hills Capital vis-a-vis our funds. And that's a nuanced sort of niche product that's very attractive to investors. The alternative term that I think a lot of investors right now are attracted to but it's not part of our funds is pref equity or an income play, some sort of position where you can invest in the deal and be the first money out and also the first money to eat, right, of the distributions or available cash flow. So those are kind of the two places where I'm seeing investors really interested right now. Frankly, they were interested in it before, you know, the interest rates rose and we, you know, shifted into this new new world. So it continues to be very attractive to investors that strategy in particular. So let's talk a little bit about that and and maybe take a step back. You know, we we talk a lot about 
more the investment philosophy, right? Let, let's turn the table to kind of more the investor facing strategy because ultimately deals have to get funded and every deal in every community at every asset class is getting funded somehow, right? It's somehow, some way money's getting put down and typically there's some other party that's financing it, right? And we tend to think of like, I put the money down and the bank finances it, but in commercial real estate, you know, that works for a 300000 hour single family home. It doesn't work for a $150 million, you know, apartment building, right? So when we talk about GP and, and, and LP, let's maybe define those two things just for the sake of discussion, because I think we'll probably hit on those a couple of times. So in a, in a partnership deal, what is the typical role of a GP, which is the general partner? And then what is the role typically of an LP, which is a limited partner? Yeah, good question. So a general partner is the company typically who's sourcing the deal, who's sourcing the financing, meaning the debt for that deal, who is due diligencing the property itself, the physical property, its history, where the seller has taken the property, where it can go, due diligencing the market where the property sits and maybe what money is being left on the table via rents, like what's the property charging for a two bedroom and what's the property next door charging and what's the discrepancy, any deferred maintenance, what, what does the property need as far as the actual, does it need new roofs? Does it need new paving? What amenities is the property missing? Does it need a fitness center or a clubhouse or a dog park? Things that renters want to see in order to pay a little bit more in premium. And then also on the expense side of things, where is the property being mismanaged? Is it overstaffed? Are the utilities out of whack? Things like that. Uh, value that you can find when you turn over the stones. And then once the property is acquired, the GP is overseeing the asset management or the property management of the property from inception to sale executing on the renovation plan, executing on making sure the leases, new leases are signed at the new premiums that we're going to be charging, making sure all those expenses that I just met, that I just mentioned are being refined and reduced. However, we go about doing that. Uh, and then we procure, find a seller, right? We, we take it through the sale process. So we really do it all. And that's what the GP is. That's what the GP does. The LP partner on the flip side could be a institutional fund, it could be a private equity firm, it could be a family office, or it could be a syndication, meaning a group of high net worth investors that all pool their money together. The term limited partners really defines what they do. They're, they're limited as far as their participation. They're passive throughout the ownership period. Typically, they'll have major decision rights, meaning the GP has to come and get their permission if they want to sell. They need to get their permission if they want to do a refinance of the debt or if they want to switch property management. So really the big, the big decisions is where the LP sort of taps in momentarily. And then besides that, they're, you know, sitting and collecting their distributions, which is, which is a nice life. It's a nice uh, position to be in. And that's where we, you know, when you hear the term passive investor, right, that's really kind of what on any of the previous shows or, or out in the marketplace, if you're seeing things come in front of you in, in the form of marketing. And the idea here is to be able to leverage, and I'll use Colony as an example. I mean, Colony is a business that makes their money by putting together and packaging real estate deals. And the more successful the deal, the more money that they make, right? And for a variety of ways. But in order for them to get deals done, they have to be creative and manage the way that they raise capital. And Colony is not unique. Anyone that's in a real estate business does that, right? And so as they package these deals, 
they're out in the marketplace. And I love that you pointed out a lot of the ways that you can get a deal closed because the limited partners in a deal don't just have to be individual investors in a syndicate, right? It could be one family office writes a $12 million check. It could be one private equity fund writes a $12 million check. It could be an insurance company that's sitting on billions of dollars, you know, in, in future claim money that could write a check. So there's so many different ways where we tend to hear the term and where I think it matters for our listeners is when these deals are in fact syndicated, right? So they are in a syndication, there are individual investors. And I think you'd be amazed if you just drove around your own city or town and looked around that any decent sized commercial real estate, apartment complex, storage facility, office building, industrial park, you name it, chances are some or all of those have syndicated individual limited partners as part of the deal. And so if you kind of think about that, it's your opportunity to basically buy real estate and own real estate at a larger scale, but own it without actually having to understand how the heck a self-storage facility is built, managed, and operated. So as we carry through on this, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, from an offering standpoint, right? I mean, these are a little bit different. They're private, right? These are not publicly traded. And so it's really important. There are some marketplaces that exist today based on some regulatory changes with the JOBS Act. But as a general rule, for a lot of these individual investment opportunities, they are private. Most of them require you to be accredited, which means you have the financial validation, right? A million dollars of net worth, $300,000 filing jointly, 200000 filing singly of income. So they're income or, or worth-based. And then you have some that require you to be sophisticated. And sophisticated can have different definitions, maybe not as high as standards on the monetary side. And there's been some changes that have been approved, but we haven't quite seen them come to fruition yet on the accredited investor. All some exciting stuff that allows you maybe to take a test and get to accreditation. So some pretty cool stuff. If you're not familiar with it, guys, definitely take some time and, and go Google it. But as these funds are set up, they all have different requirements, right? And so let's at least just maybe talk about the, the the general solicitation, some of the crowdfunding. I know you guys are accessible on a crowdfunding platform or some crowdfunding platforms like iCapital. And, and uh, I'm sure there's more out there. There's other firms or other groups like Realty Mogul and you know all these different sites that people may already be familiar with. Most of those are marketplaces for a handful of these private real estate equity deals that exist. And then the rest of them are sold privately, right? They're sold without a general solicitation or they're sold without there being a, a large marketing presence behind it. So let's start there. You know, when you guys are setting up a fund, how do you guys decide, you know, how you want to go out? You've made a decision you want to syndicate it, right? You made a decision you want to have individual investors. How do you decide what the right approach is? Do you put it on crowdfunding platforms? Because each of these, to my understanding, and you can help better articulate, but depending on which structure you choose depends on your filing requirements and disclosure notices and all of that. So it's uh, it's not just a pick one and move on. It's a, hey, how do we want to manage this? Yeah. So when we started off on the fundraise, we didn't choose any single path. We had multiple paths that we were targeting. So RIAs, registered investment advisors was one of those. And we would pay for you know research and databases to connect with those with those shops, broker dealers, you know, and their reps, they have access to their own clientele or their own investor network. Also connect with with them. And then you mentioned Realty Mogul, so we've done deals with Realty Mogul, Equity Multiple, CityVest, 
a couple of smaller also crowdfunding platforms. A few of them have had our featured our funds, fund one and fund two on their platforms, and it's been successful. And so because we do a Reg D 506C offering, it allows us to market. Just we have to make sure we ensure that our investors are in fact accredited. And then we also have our own marketing efforts that we do. You know, we pay for SEO and I have an assistant and a counterpart and we have investors coming to us through our website who who I speak to on a regular basis. So it's it's all the above, just so long as the individual is accredited and and or it's a private equity firm or an RIA, something of that nature. So multiple strategies. Yeah. And so if you're listening, you know, the I think a key takeaway here for for you is that, you know, you have to kind of decide, not decide, but you have to determine where you sit. It's okay to not be accredited. It doesn't mean that you have no access to these types of investments. It just means that there may be some for filing purposes and for reporting purposes that just only allow that. The nice thing is, is that the jumpstart to business startups, uh, and this was passed back in the Obama administration, really helped pave the way for a lot of this, what we would consider or call general solicitation, stuff that does allow, you know, in this case, Colony Hills to actually go out and market and make these things readily available. So, you know, my first first bit of guidance for you is kind of see where you you sit on that spectrum, if you don't meet the accreditation standards for to be considered a credit investor, what standards do you hit, right? Do you meet the sophistication levels? And if you don't meet that accredited investor standard, then then a lot of these crowdfunding platforms and sites will have investment offerings that are available to you as well. They tend to have a lot smaller dollar amounts of investments. Now, there may be some higher fees involved because there's additional reporting nuances and requirements. So you want to make sure you understand exactly what that looks like. But there's no right or wrong answer. But it is important that you know, you know where you're able to go shop, right, if you're interested in being a passive investor. So you had mentioned the, the CoGP model, right? So let's kind of go back to that. I know we started there and here we are almost full circle. What does that mean, right? So when you say a CoGP model, just walk us through that one more time. What's unique about that, right? What does that look like? Does it still require accredited investor status? And then what does your participation look like? Sure. So it definitely require, at least we require accreditation based off of the exemption we filed with the Reg D506C. But I'll, I'll emphasize, Jason, what you just said. A lot of these crowdfunding platforms next to one offering that requires accreditation has an offering that doesn't. So there's a lot of options, a lot of opportunities out there. But for a CoGP fund, so I'm going to take a stab at defining what a waterfall is because that's important to understand the difference, the benefits of being in a, a GP position in the deal versus an LP. So let's say you have a deal where that requires $10 million of equity. I'm ignoring the debt for a minute. And the GP partner that we already defined earlier comes to the deal with $2 million, so 20% out of that $10 million. And then the LP, let's call it a syndication of investors or a private equity firm or family office or any of the above, comes to the deal with $8 million, right? So now we have a 20-80 split, 20%, 80%, 20 to the GP, 80% to the LP. And typically before the acquisition is done, there's an agreement that's forged between the GP and the LP that says, hey, how's the money split up? How's the money split up during ownership and how's the money split up when we sell? 
So you're going to hear a term tossed around very often called pro rata. And pro rata means that the money during the ownership period, meaning the available cash flow from the property, is split according to your ownership percentage. So the GP gets 20%, the LP gets 80%, okay? Sometimes you'll have a priority return where the LP has to get first dibs on the cash flow until they hit a certain return bogey, let's call it 7 or 8%. And then the next cash goes to the GP until they hit a 7 and 8%. Okay, but stick with a pro rata example because it's easier for now. Now the property sells and each member gets their money back. The 80% LP gets their $8 million back. The GP gets their $2 million back. But that agreement basically says that the first hurdle, the first step of that waterfall is the cash flow is returned. And then after the cash flow is returned, it's split pro rata between the two parties, meaning any excess after return of capital is split pro rata between the two parties until that LP partner hits, let's say, an 8% IRR or an 8% return on their money. Once they hit that 8% return, that triggers what's called the first promote. And you can think of a promote as like a promotion. When you do good at your job, you get a promotion in your job, right? You get elevated in the company. It's the same thing for the GP. The GP gets a promotion. And how do they get that promotion? Their 20% gets promoted or increased to, let's say, 30%. And then the LP's 80% gets demoted or goes down to 70%. Until, and that's how the cash flow is now split up. The remaining cash flow of the sale proceeds is split up 30-70 until the LP hits, let's say, uh, 11% return. And now with this LP hits the 11% return, the GP gets an additional promotion. They get now, instead of 30%, they get 40%. And the LP goes down to 60%. And now I'm walking away with 40, as a GP, I'm getting 40% share of the upside. And I only put in 20% of the of the equity, right? So now my net returns, if the LP's net returns, excuse me, are going to be a 16% return, my net returns as the GP is probably going to be more like 21 to 22%, right? So I'm walking away with a better, a better chunk of the pie whilst only putting in 20% of the equity. However, I put in a lot of sweat equity, right? I put in a lot of work. And I, for all that work, that's why I walk away with that disproportionate share of the upside. Okay, that's a waterfall structure. That's the difference between an LP and a GP as far as the returns. Now, going back to the co-GP question, the co-GP opportunity is interesting in that the, the investors get to invest into that GP position. They don't have to do any of the work. And they still get their pro rata share of all of that promotion that I just described to you, all that promote. So they get their pro rata share of all that upside that the GP gets and that's unique to the GP. And so investors are attracted to that because, hey, I can get uh, a 2x on my money instead of a one and a half by investing into the GP and I don't have to do any of the work. And I'm investing with a sophisticated, experienced sponsor. This is awesome, right? That's the typical response across the board. And, and honestly, our funds have been, thank God, pretty easy to raise because of that. Because once investors understand you know, that strategy and that opportunity, they usually jump on it. Well, that is definitely a pretty cool approach. And, and I have to say, I've heard lots of different breakdowns of GPLP and waterfalls and all those things. And that really nailed it. One thing just to highlight out of all of that is that this is all pre 
agreed upon through the private placement docs and subscription agreements before you invest. And this strategy is not new. This is not unique to real estate. There are performance waterfalls and hurdles and fees in mutual funds, right? It's not anything new. We just, we, because we don't see it, it's out of sight, out of mind. But when you think about what you're doing, you're passively investing where somebody else is putting in all the work and effort and you're hoping to generate a return. And what all these terms like waterfall and promote, what that means in very simple terms is that the more successful that the person doing all the work is, the more of the money that they're going to keep, right? But they're doing it in a way that that they have to earn more to make more, then they got to earn more to make more. So those hurdles aren't coming at a penalty to you as an investor, they're coming at a benefit to both because for for the the GP to make more money, they got to make you more money, right? And I think what's unique about what Julian's structuring currently is that you can actually invest on the GP sides of the table. So you can look like an LP, be an, be an LP for lack of better term, but invest as a GP so that you have the same level of upside on the success. So you're really heavily vested in this case, even more so in the success of the fund, maybe than you normally would be as a limited partner or investor. Is that a fair way to put it? It is. And I, I'll also add, you know, a lot of times investors ask us once they understand that structure, they say, why are you guys doing this? Why are you opening this opportunity to us? Why, why don't you just raise or syndicate capital into the LP position? The answer to that question is our CEO, Glenn Hansen, and our, and our CIO president, David Kaufman, both have to sign on what's called a bad boy carve-out guarantee or limited guarantees for the loans, right, that we sign on each acquisition. And part of the requirements for that loan, right, as I'm sure many are aware of liquidity and, and net worth requirements with, with loans, but for non-recourse loans, the signer typically has to have 5 to 10% of the loan amount in the form of liquidity and 80 to 100% of the loan amount in the form of net worth. So if if Glenn and David are investing into every deal, the full amount of the GP equity, their liquidity is going to get exhausted pretty quickly. And so what this GP fund does is it helps supplement the GP requirement of the equity and it allows essentially allows Colony Hills and Glenn and David to preserve some of their liquidity so as to continue to be able to sign on those loans and for Colony to keep doing acquisitions. So it's kind of a you scratch our back, we scratch yours relationship with uh, with the fund. Yeah, so that's interesting because it and the transparency is refreshing because really what you're what you're doing is saying, hey, we're going to ultimately let you on the seat of the table, right, that has the ability to have higher upside, right, even though you're not actually putting the work in. But as a result, the benefit to us, yeah, we got to pay out a little bit more as we're more successful. And, and I think we all agree. We all care a lot less about the splits, the more successful we are, right? Everybody's getting paid. But what it's allowing Colony to do is it's allowing you to expand your purchasing power so that you're not, you know, there's not a box around you or a cage that gets tighter and tighter as you do more deals. It actually continues to expand. So pretty cool philosophy and, and pretty cool opportunity for people really to sit on a different side. Let's talk a little bit about the parties, right? We talked about kind of this GP and this this LP and maybe a co-GP, depending on, you know, your, your unique structure. But if we're talking in general terms, who are some of the parties, right? So if I were going to go invest into a private real estate deal like this, who are the cast of characters, right? Who are the people that I may interface with, deal with, see? And we can you can kind of speak in general terms or more specific terms if that's easier for you. Sure. So 
the biggest part of the stack on every deal is always the lender, right? So you have to deal with the lender and the lender and the sort of debt that you use can make or break a deal. It could literally take a deal that you're not so excited about, but then you get a really good piece of financing, good piece of debt. And all of a sudden this deal is incredible. It's like it went through plastic surgery or something. And what I mean by that is the interest rate, right? What kind of rate are you borrowing at? Everyone knows that. And then also the leverage. What sort of leverage do you have access to with that debt? And what, I'm, what I mean by leverage is loan to value or loan to cost. So if I'm buying the deal for $10 million, but I can take out debt for $7.5 million or $8 million bucks versus only five, right? the returns are going to look a lot better because I have to come to the table with far less equity. So that's the first most important party, let's call it, that you would deal with and how you're and how you're structuring that deal. And then second, as I already mentioned, you have the LP partner. The LP partner could be uh, you know, institutional folks, or I've said this multiple multiple times now, but institutional folks or a syndication. And then within the GP, as far as you know, investors dealing with the with the GP member, it really depends on the depth of the sponsor you're dealing with, you know, how large the team is. A lot of teams have specific investor relations employees or investor relation department. Sometimes you're talking to myself, you know, as the capital raiser, but you're also talking to Nick Mailhorn, who's our VP of acquisitions, who's the, you know, the engineer behind all of our Excel models, and he's explaining everything to you. So it really depends on the investor's needs, uh, how sophisticated they are, how deep they want to go with the opportunity, and how much due diligence they want to do before pulling the trigger on an investment. But those are typically the three parties involved in every deal, lender, LP, GP. Yeah, and you know, one of the seats, you know, as you you look at that deal from an investor or client standpoint, you've got a lot of additional opportunities in terms of groups you can interface with. Uh, in this case, you know, we talk about NewView on the custodial side, right? If if you're choosing to make an investment, one of these private investments through a retirement account, you've got to insert a custodian between you and the investment because chances are, uh, you know, one of the large wirehouses or clearing firms is not going to want to custody a private real estate equity deal. It's just not their business since there's no ticker symbol. You know, you need to understand how these deals are valued, how they're held. So there's a, a continuing ongoing list of due diligence. But I think, Julian, you you have done a fantastic job of kind of helping us understand really the the how behind it. I think we all do get caught up and and I, you know, there's there's different asset classes that people talk about all the time and they're all exciting, but self-storage is going to be a self-storage deal no matter what. But it's the packaging that the sponsor puts it in. It's the way they offer it to the market. It's the types of investors that they accept. It's the type of of returns and splits that they offer. It's the seat at the table that you have when you put your money in. Those are all considerations. And I really appreciate you breaking it down for us today because uh, I think a lot of people focus so much on the asset class that we don't step back and just take a look and say, hey, what does it actually mean? How do I compare this fund versus another fund versus another fund? So one thing I'll I will say about every single deal is the packaging of the deal is equally as important as the strategy of the deal, right? What's the asset class? Is it going to be a good investment? Do you believe the numbers pencil out? Do you, did they derive at the math in a logical way? Are they paying realistic returns, you know, in relation to market conditions and what they're getting the deal for? You know, does the sponsor have the track record? Have they done multiple deals? Is this the first deal? How did they price this? Where do they find the deal? I mean, 
you know, you could go on and on, but you do have to be comfortable with the deal. But make sure that uh, that you're taking a hard, hard look at how that deal structured. What are the fees? What are the splits? And do they line up? One thing we haven't talked about, and I think we'll we'll wrap up on. If you're looking for private real estate deals, there are some that are income based, you know, where you're buying the cash flow. There are some that are capital growth based, right, where you're buying the future gains. What is a typical strategy and and any that I'm missing there that you can highlight is kind of our last question today? Yeah, so it depends on the investor what they're trying to do with their with their money, right? So if they're if they're a retiree and they're trying to live off of their investable capital, you know, through income, then you know investors should be looking for more of a debt play or pref equity where they're going to have income and they should be looking for opportunities and deals where there's a high going in cap rate that term it gets thrown around a lot uh, discovering that less and less people that I actually ask you know hey do you know what this means they don't right so it's it's the NOI it's the net operating income of the property divided by the purchase price and it gives you a good idea of What's my cash on cash going into this property, buying this property? And you typically, just as an aside, just this is a piece of advice for all investors, you should be looking for what's called neutral leverage. So you should be looking at, hey, what's the interest rate on this deal? And what's the going in cap rate? Are they equal? You should be looking to see that the cap rate is either equal to the interest rate or higher. You want it to be what's called positive leverage. So if I'm borrowing money at 5.5%, I ideally want to be buying a deal that's, you know, a cap rate going in of 5.75% or 6%. Then I have positive leverage. I'm in a really healthy position in this deal. Amongst all the other questions that Jason just laid out um, that you want to be asking and looking for. And then a lot of people just divvy up their portfolio and they want, like you said, capital growth. I'm going to put my money into this deal. I don't care if I see a distribution from it for the next three years, just so long as when it sells or it's constructed, if it's a development deal, I'm going to make a two to two and a half X of my money. So it really depends on what the appetite is and the goal of the investor. But everything's available. I mean, really, all these different types of scenarios are available. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. I think I've learned uh, over the years of being here that there is a deal, a structure, a strategy, a wrapper of every you know single type, and and that's great. I mean, it, it means that we have options, and options are good for investors. All right, Julian. Before we let you go, we're going to hit you with our learn before you burn, so that we can take your lesson, your experience, and share that with our listeners, so that they can get the lesson without having to go through that experience. So tell our listeners, uh, what's the hot stove you touched in your career or lifetime that you want to prevent someone else from doing, but make sure they get the lesson that it taught you? Yeah, I would say that the concept that I just broke down really neutral leverage, when you're buying a deal, when you're investing in a deal, look at what's there, meaning the cap rate, look at what cash flow is in place and what you're borrowing at. In 2021, you know, we did a lot of deals. We did a lot of volume, as did most most uh, sponsors, and also 2020, but mostly 2021. And the interest rates then were, you know, I could we could buy a deal with a three and a half percent interest rate and 80 percent loan to cost, right? Amazing leverage, low rate. And what happened with that availability of inexpensive capital is prices also went up, or in other words, cap rates came down. So we would buy a deal borrowing at three and a half percent, but the cap rate was also three and a quarter or or three and a half, depending on where we were buying. 
And we were so focused on where we were going to take this property that we ignored the basis for a couple acquisitions. And that was that was a mistake because what we should have done is we should have seen that, hey, you know, the government's giving out money. It's a matter of time for inflation to kick in. It's only a matter of time for how do you counteract inflation? You raise interest rates, right? And with those acquisitions I just mentioned, those were floating rate loans. So the it's around the corner that those rates are going to go up. Can your business plan, can our business plan uh, survive that test? So thankfully, in those instances, we bought what's called rate caps, where we manufactured a ceiling for that floating rate, variable rate debt. And those properties are doing okay, but we could have done much better. We could have put lower leverage debt on it, fixed rate, and maybe that would have weeded out a lot of those assets that we acquired. Maybe not. But we probably should have, we should have had that foresight. And I know for certain, hopefully I'm still involved uh, and alive and kicking for our next cycle. But I know that's a lesson that I'm never going to forget. It's something that I am very focused on now when I'm looking at our new deals that we're acquiring. So that's the, that's the learned and burned for me. Well, I appreciate that. You know, when you, you shared that earlier, the kind of simple rule of thumb I love it. I, I can't help, you know, I know in the residential investment world, right, you have the 1% rule. And it is amazing just how back of the napkin math, you can look at a deal and say, hey, does this at least make sense? And, you know, it's not a substitute for due diligence, but it does. It it kind of helps clear things up sooner and faster without a lot of work and time invested. So I really, uh, I have never heard that. And so I appreciate you sharing that. I know I'll benefit from that gravely. So And I appreciate the candor. We all look back and say, hey, we're all investors, right? We hope we knock it out of the park every single time, but it's okay. We're not going to. And when we don't, what lessons can we learn, right? And and how do we make sure that we mitigate that going forward? So I appreciate you sharing that. Julian, we are going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time today and, and really appreciate it. We'll throw all your contact info and information into the show notes if anyone does want to pick up the phone and call you and bend your ear in, in uh, any way, shape, or form. We'll have the info there for them to do so. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. All right, everybody. Well, thank you again for joining us on the All About Alts podcast. Be sure to hit the like, share, and subscribe button. Also, love reviews. It helps other people know what you think of the show. Your feedback is critical, not just to us, but the community we're continuing to build. So as always, we will help you understand all about alts and the investments uh, that do exist. And we'll try to help you do it and make those investments in the smartest, most tax efficient manner. So thanks for joining us until next week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content. And we'll see you next week.